of course, as uh, was also noted in the readout, but let me just reiterate, uh, he also uh, conveyed uh, and, and described the implications and consequences if China provides material support to Russia. But again, I'm not going to provide any additional assessment from here. Welcome to another edition of Goodfellows, a production of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. I'm H.R. McMaster sitting in for Bill Whalen, who's off this week. I'm joined, as always, by my fellow Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson and John Cochran. But this week, we're fortunate to be joined by another Hoover Institution fellow, Matt Pottinger, who's a, is a distinguished visiting fellow at Hoover. Matt served with great distinction in the White House. We served together on the National Security Council staff when he was the senior director for Asia. And then Matt later went on to become the deputy national security advisor. And hey, Matt, it's great to have you here. And I just want to say, Matt Pottinger, I think, really was the driving force behind the most significant shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. And that's the shift in our approach to China from cooperation and engagement to transparent competition. But hey, welcome, Matt. It's, it's great to be with you. HR, it's great to be with you. Uh, I, I, I give you credit for, for forcing that, uh, that shift uh, with the national security strategy that, uh, that, that you uh, bulldogged through and, uh, and that President Trump signed in his first year in office. It was a real landmark. But it's great to be with you and, and with John and with Neil. And, you know, we could talk about a lot, right? And Matt's, you know, Matt has a, a long history of service, service to our nation as a, as a Marine in Iraq and Afghanistan, and service as a journalist for a, quite a long time in, in China as well, and he was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. But Matt, there's probably nobody better than to maybe begin our discussion today uh, on, on, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, but really especially how this this catastrophe for the, the, the Ukrainian people, the, the war there. Uh, and, and Russian aggression relates uh, to to what Xi Jinping is doing. There, the relationship between between China and and Russia, and and what do you think China is, is thinking about this war, learning from this war, reacting to this war? Yeah, I I think there's little doubt that Xi Jinping. Uh, is underwriting the war, right? He's providing diplomatic cover for it, uh, propaganda cover. He's blocking initiatives all over the world. Even the upcoming G20 meeting, the Chinese are working overtime to try to prevent the G20 from even discussing the war that's taking place in Europe. Uh, and, I, and I think that uh, they probably won't be able to help themselves uh, and will end up providing financial support uh, for the war and perhaps uh, military material. Uh, for the for the Russian uh, campaign uh, to destroy Ukraine if they can't have it, <laughs> uh, so um, so I, I think that's one thing we need to be clear about. I think that's obvious at this point, in spite of Chinese uh, uh, you know disinformation and and uh, double mouth diplomacy that's trying to cast them as somehow a, a neutral player here. What's also clear is that they have miscalculated, just like Vladimir Putin miscalculated. Uh, uh, thinking that this would be an easy war. Um, I think that Xi Jinping um, trusted Putin's instincts and, and made the same miscalculation and that there is a lesson in this uh, with respect to Taiwan. If you read a lot of the People's Liberation Army doctrine, if you look at comments that they're making to one another in their conferences, in their publications, um, everything rests on the idea that uh, an invasion of Taiwan would be quick and neat and decisive and that it would all be wrapped up and tied up with a bow before the United States could even get his trousers on. 
so I, the, if I were a war planner <laughs> sitting in Beijing or in one of the, uh, uh, you know, the combatant commands down on, on the southeast coast of China, um, I, I'd be staying up a little bit later at night and, and sweating a little, a, a little heavier on, on some of the baseline assumptions that seem to be uh, showing some of the baseline assumptions that seem to suggest that Beijing thinks a Taiwan war would be easy. Uh, that said, that doesn't mean that they're not going to do a war. Uh, there's only one guy who's going to decide, and his name is Xi Jinping. Uh, and um, he is someone who is tying himself tighter to, to Putin right now. He's someone who, very much like Putin, spent his entire career climbing this ladder to amass immense power and, and, and is not going to waste it. Uh, these are guys who are now, you know, who were patient in accumulating power and, and are now very impatient in wielding it. And Neil touched on a lot of these topics in, uh, in, in his weekly uh, column, uh, which I, you know, which I, which I recommend the Bloomberg column. And Neil, you're, you're also the guy who kind of first coined this phrase of Cold War II. Hey, anybody who was denying it, right? I mean, I, I think now it's quite obvious, right, yeah. that this is this is uh, you know, a Cold War that that maybe everybody has to acknowledge because of the hot war, right? In in uh, Ukraine, what, what's your what's your assessment of this Xi Jinping, you know, Putin bromance, uh, professed love for one another? Uh, how the war is affecting that, and and what what you anticipate is going to happen next in that relationship? Well, you will struggle to find much uh, distance between Matt, me and Matt Pottinger on these issues. I read with interest an interview that Matt did for the Wall Street Journal uh, over the weekend. And I actually want to get you to talk about that, Matt, because in it, you, you used Cold War II as a, as a framing uh, analogy. And your argument, which I have also made, is that in a way, this is like a kind of flipped Cold War, because in Cold War I, Russia's the senior partner and China is the junior partner. The first hot war happens in Asia uh, rather than in Europe, it's in Korea. And your argument, which I think is right, is that this is a little bit like the Korean War, only because everything's flipped, the hot wars in, in Europe. And I'm, I'm intrigued to explore that analogy further, because I think it's right. I think one of the things the Korean War did was to persuade Americans that the Cold War was real. Because I'm very struck by the fact that the early British warnings about a Cold War, Orwell's in 1945, Churchill's in 1946, were largely ignored or dismissed by many Americans. But you couldn't really pretend that there was going to be peaceful coexistence uh, after the North Korean invasion of South Korea. So let's talk a bit about what that implies, because it struck me, and this is a point I made in the Bloomberg column uh, today, that there is one huge difference. And that huge difference is that when North Korea invaded South Korea, the United States led an international coalition into that war. Whereas in this case, all we are doing is providing Ukraine with armaments and not even the full suite of armaments that we could provide. So our intervention here is on a much more modest scale. And I worry about where that potentially could lead. So please tell us more about your understanding of the analogy and how you think Cold War II plays out, because it might not play out as well as Cold War I ultimately did. Yeah, well, Neil, you were you were far earlier than everybody in calling this uh, what it is, which is a second Cold War. <clears throat> I I um I I've thought for a long time that Beijing was waging a Cold War against us, but I've also believed that Americans were not willing uh, or ready yet to sort of accept 
um, uh, accept the nature of the conflict that we're in. I think that Ukraine now makes it blindingly obvious, at least to my mind, uh, that that's the paradigm that we're in. And actually that it's valuable, it's useful to think of it in Cold War terms because it has predictive and explanatory value um, as you've said, there's, there are differences between World War I and World War II as well, but, but let's not get lost in the nuance of the differences. The, the, the similarities overshadow them and, and help us to really frame uh, and, and keep in mind the sorts of things that we need to be doing as, as business leaders, as policymakers, as everyday citizens. Um, look, I, I mean, the, the similarities include the fact that we're in a long-term strategic competition between nuclear armed powers. Um, it, it is, uh, these are powers for whom military uh, might is extremely important. Uh, and it is possible that we end up in a head, head, head to head conflict with either Russia or with China, God forbid, with both. Uh, but there is also an interest, uh, I believe, on the part of even Putin and Xi Jinping, as well as uh, the US and, and, and its allies to, to constrain uh, our our head-to-head competition to other domains, informational, technological, and economic, uh, diplomatic, uh, and so forth. So th- there are a lot of there are a lot of commonalities. You mentioned the fact that that you know uh, Winston Churchill gave his his great uh, speech in in Fulton, Missouri, 1946, with at Harry Truman's invitation, where he talked about an iron curtain that has descended from Stettin in the Baltic. To Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. He spoke in in actually complimentary terms about Joseph Stalin in that speech. And that's because he was trying to persuade the American people that this isn't about our, our World War I and World War II alliances with Russia. This We're now in a new paradigm. And he was trying to use his amazing art arts and gifts of persuasion to say, yeah, <laughs> he was a great stalwart ally of us, but now uh, he, he is running a totalitarian system that threatens the free world. And it, it, it really took the, the intervening five years from the end of World War II to the beginning of the Korean War for Americans and, and the West to kind of warm up to the idea that, yeah, this really is a Cold War. This is, some, this is a real existential competition. And it, it, was, the, it was the war in, uh, in uh, Korea that crystallized it for us. Last point to, to your point about um, the, the key difference, right? We, we did fight <laughs> on the Korean Peninsula together. It was a, a so-called police action where we had the entire UN with us. The Russians slept through the uh, session at the, uh, at the UN and they, they didn't veto it. Uh, and so you had the, the entire UN behind uh, the effort to push uh, North Korea and eventually the Chinese so-called volunteers out of, uh, out of Korea. This is now today the, the, uh, an advertisement, both a defensive and offensive advertisement for nuclear weapons. Uh, if Ukraine had only had the nuclear weapons that it gave up, uh, perhaps uh, Vladimir Putin would not have uh, uh, made the calculations he's made and made the invasion that he's made. And at the same time, it shows that if you have got nukes, you've got a free hand to wage conventional or even terrorist wars uh, against your neighbors. Um, without fear of, ret- of direct retaliation. And that's why Iran is pursuing doggedly a nuclear weapons capability. It's not because they're going to nuke uh, Israel. It's because they want to be able to destroy Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and other countries using conventional means or using the terrorists that they fund uh, while enjoying the shade and protection of a nuclear umbrella at home. Matt, can I ask a question? 
which I'm really eager to hear your answer to. It seems to me that that your successors at the National Security Council in the Biden administration have carried over a lot of what you and HR put in place in the national security strategy of 2017, a lot, especially on China. Uh, but they don't like to use the terminology of Cold War. In fact, Biden explicitly said to Xi Jinping on their call on Friday, we're not in a Cold War, which I think the Chinese take to mean we are in a Cold War. How much continuity do you see? And what's different about the new administration's approach? Yeah, you know, I, first, I think there is a significant degree of continuity. And um, I, I, I see it in Congress as well. I see that a reasonably uh, widely shared bipartisan consensus across the middle of Congress um, that this is our chief adversary. This is a country that doesn't mean us well. And also a recognition that our, our so-called engagement strategy of decades um, just, just didn't deliver. It, it just turned out to be based on wrong assumptions. We don't, we don't need to blame uh, uh, people for that who, who originally pursued that. Although if people are still arguing for that, they need to have their heads checked. Uh, but uh, so I do think that there's a lot of continuity. I, I, I see that President Biden's team has kept in place the president has kept in place a lot of the tools that we uh, that we forged in in the uh, over the course of the Trump administration. Blacklists for investment, uh, you know. Pre- uh, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo called uh, genocide, uh, used genocide to describe what's happening in Xinjiang, and uh, uh, Tony Blinken picked up the baton and 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 ran with that, and also agrees that what we're seeing is a genocide. So so the continuity is the main uh, sort of uh, order of the day. Uh, where there are differences are, in, in many cases, it's rhetorical, uh, like you mentioned. For example, we always believed that it was important to uh, make a distinction between China and the Chinese people on one hand and the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping on the other. We were, we were almost obsessive about uh, making sure that, uh, that people understood that we were calling out the Communist Party. We were not calling out the Chinese people or their nation. Um, uh, the Biden team shied away from that. They somehow think that calling the Chinese Communist Party the Chinese Communist Party is is provocative in, in some way. I don't I, I don't fully understand. Maybe they don't that. think they're communists. You know, I think they think they're the Diet Coke of communists. <laughs> Just one calorie, not communist enough. But I think they're quite communist. They're quite communist. Well, yeah. If you if you read Xi Jinping's speeches, <laughs> it's 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 uh, the jolt cola of communism. <laughs> you know, I mean, this stuff is like. I, I mean, I've I've been reading through his speeches recently. Uh, to, to just put together a compendium of, of uh, his worldview, just to, for a quick article that, that um, I'm trying to put together. Uh, it, it is stunning uh, to, to, to really immerse yourself in the worldview of the Chinese leader. Many of those speeches were kept secret for several years. Sometimes they dribble them out only in Chinese language, and then they're duly ignored by the New York Times and other you know, publications, unless he's speaking uh, you know, at Davos uh, in, in, in an English language translation. But if you read the guy, which I think we should be doing, just as we should have been reading more carefully Vladimir Putin, the way that Neil Ferguson was reading Vladimir Putin. You know, 2007 Munich speech, right? I mean, he just kind of laid it out right there. He laid it out. Yeah. There it is. Right. You yeah. know, it's like, listen, listen to these guys. You know, they, they, they mean what they say oftentimes. Um, Osama bin Laden meant what he yeah. said. So, hey, uh, hey I want to get, I want to get John in here because, you know, well, the, I have a question the, the, the question, yeah. the question I'm asked most frequently these days is, hey, is this going to blow over to China? You know, it was it, it was easy. People th- seem to think to to decouple, uh, largely decouple from Russia, but much much more difficult to do that, obviously, from China. 
And and I often get asked, what are the economic ramifications? And I just say, I will ask John Cochran the next <laughs> time I talk to him. So, what, what, how do you, how do you see this developing, John, in terms of you know China's you know if China is shown to be utterly complicit and continuing to support Russia, and what, what do you think are the consequences? Well, um, yes, disengaging from China is a lot harder and much much more expensive, very damaging to our country. Um, <clears throat> And I think that I think we need to take this larger point of view. I, I'll sort of answer my question by asking the larger question, which I'd like you guys to think about. Let's get past the invasion of Taiwan and China's direct support for this war. Looks likely where we're headed here is uh, some sort of division of Ukraine. Uh, we are not going to push the Russians out, uh, and so hopefully the Ukrainian government, some sort of Ukrainian government, stays alive in the western half. North Korea, South Korea replays, or it could fall and Russia gets all of Korea and we settle down to a cold war of sanctions and other sorts of uh, 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 things against Russia. Where does China play in? Well, China uh, is is obviously going to be helping the Russians to avoid these sanctions. So I, I don't think that long sanctions regime without China on board uh, Russia needs to survive. It needs very small numbers of crucial. You can substitute away from a lot of stuff. Uh, there's a very small, crucial number of things like semiconductors you got to get. China will help them to get them. Um, that That's not going to be that hard. Now, how about the rest of the world? One of the things that happened in Cold War I was the rest of the world quickly lined up. And uh, here, I, 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 uh, Walter Russell Mead's uh, uh, op-ed today in the Wall Street Journal was very eye-opening on this. So what's going on in the rest of the world? Well, the West is solidly Putin's a terrible guy. We got to line up for this Cold War. The West of the world is not so sure about that. Uh, all of the Middle East uh, is uh, hedging their bets under, you know, Saudi Arabia is going to sell oil in return for Chinese currency. Uh, South Africa saying we're not so sure. Vietnam, the rest of Asia. India is very much not so sure. I think China, you said China neutral. Neutral might not, even if they get to pose as, you know, the West is against Russia on a Cold War on that border. But, you know, we're we're going to play both sides of this game. That completely undermines the hope that a long-run sanctions and, and pressure campaign is, is going to do much good. And it's hard to blame uh, the rest of the world. They look at the U.S. flip-flopping between um, the, the woke crusade and the uh, Trumpian um, nationalist isolationism, and, and it's hard to trust much of the U.S., the sanctions have been uh, very powerful. Uh, I think the most powerful one was taking away the Russian central bank's uh, currency. Everybody else around the world has just noticed that. This is, uh, HR tells us about weapons you get to use once and then people find countermeasures. And, uh, you know, the Brazilians notice our, our, we are still running financial sanctions against American com uh, oil companies. Uh, the SEC just announced new rules that, <laughs> that to, do to, to do to American oil what, uh, what we're trying to do to Russia. And the rest of the world says, oh, wait a minute, all of our uh, dollar investments uh, could be wiped out when the US they don't, says they don't like us for whatever reason. And that's gonna not necessarily push them to be on our side of this re regime. So uh, thinking about the long run and thinking about how this uh, breaks out across the rest of the world, I'd like to go back to your strategic questions and, and then maybe we can go into just, can the US uh, decouple from China? What would that mean and how incredibly expensive would it be? Quick question for Matt. Um, I'm not aware because I don't have your linguistic skills of what kind of discussion is going on in China about the uh, central bank uh, reserves, but clearly uh, the most drastic aspect of uh, Western sanctions against Russia, as John just said, was the freezing of a substantial proportion of uh, the Russian central bank's uh, 
uh, foreign exchange reserves. If you look at China, uh, it's an even larger pile of, of dollar, euro, and other Western currency denominated uh, assets. What's the reserves rather? What's the what's the, is there a Chinese discussion about this? And people beginning to wonder what do we do if they try that to us? Quick, get those in a form where the U.S. can't turn turn flip a switch and deny us all our money. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a recognition in China uh, that one, there is no easy way in the near term to escape uh, uh, the punishing effects of of the types of sanctions that we put in place on Russia, kicking Russia, you know, out, you know, commercial banks out of the SWIFT system and so forth. There is, there, there's no way that uh, they're going to be able to uh, MacGyver their way with, uh, you know, <laughs> scotch tape and, and paper clips to, you know, to, to basically make up for uh, that loss. But China has had a long-term um, desire to try to break free from from U.S. dollar dominance, and it includes things like what we saw with them going and uh, offering a, a deal to the Saudis to start, you know, pricing their oil uh, purchases in in renminbi. Uh, it includes the central bank digital currency that China is working on uh, and, and has technically launched, but is is building out right now, um, which is an, a, sort of an amazing innovation. But it's it's also a a uh, very disturbing innovation in terms of the kind of power that is handed to the state when it when uh, it, when the central bank uh, issues a, a digital currency that that uh, can be switched on and off. It can be reprogrammed. It can it can be surveilled um, uh, and used to enhance the state's uh, power in ways that I, I don't think we want to. Uh, uh, emulate in the United States. Uh, and of course, they've built their own messaging system to run parallel to SWIFT. Uh, there have been several attempts over the years by uh, various powers to, to uh, uh, you know, set up their own messaging systems. It's still really tough, though, because once, once the money, that's okay for two-way trade, two-way finance between, for example, China and Russia, perhaps, maybe, maybe for Iran as well. But once you're talking about, you know, the rest of the world economy, um, which is the majority of the world's economy, um, you're going to start bumping into the U.S. Uh, financial uh, artery uh, and, 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 and vein system. Um, so uh, they've got aspirations. You know, but John's point about, you know, what, what, what's the world ready to sign up to, right? The, the world has shown us that there's one thing they are ready to sign up to because they made this, these massive votes, overwhelming votes at the United Nations uh, uh, condemning the invasion by Putin, and that is they're willing to stand up for sovereignty, okay? So it, it, they may not be ready to sign up for a, a, an old Cold War style democracy versus autocracy paradigm. I think, I think countries the world over are willing and have shown that they're willing to sign up uh, to push back against revanchist imperialism by, by, uh, by dictators. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, th that's one of the nuanced differences here. What's the rest of the world willing to do about it? I think I think there has been some progress in this area, and so I'd like to hear Matt's assessment of it. I, yeah. I didn't see Walter's column this morning, but I I do think that you know it was it was a, an accomplishment for Singapore, for example, to join in the sanctions, which was I think most people would not have predicted. South Korea under the old under the Moon government, which has just been voted out, uh, that was a bit of, maybe a little bit surprising. I mean, I I, I think uh, it shouldn't have been, but it, maybe it was. So I. What's the assessment overall of the international response? Uh, I think I think it's been good, uh, except for the Middle East, 
where we're pursuing a terrible policy, right? <laughs> which is which is supplicating to the Iranians, exacerbating uh, concerns about Iran with our you know with our, our partners in the region, their Gulf partners, you know, principally United Emirates and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, who are I think just hedging against our disengagement from the Middle East and angry, you know, about our lack of support for them uh, in the fight against the Houthi rebels, for example, in Yemen, who are you know, launching rockets into UAE, and we won't even designate them a terrorist organization because we were worried about, you know, a, a negative response from the Iranians who aren't even talking to us in the in the, uh, in the negotiations that we were going to uh, use to, I think, to resurrect a horrible nuclear deal with Russia as the guarantor. So, I mean, this all seems, you know, just crazy to me. Uh, but I think the Middle East the disenchantment of, uh, of of countries in the Middle East is is grounded ma- mainly in this in this Middle East policy. But just to the question of overall international assessment, thumbs up or or thumbs down. Well, what's what's the goal? <laughs> I think well, there's I mean, a, the, a problem the, with the, the sanctions. Goal, the goal is we're not clear. Yeah, what the goal the, would be that so Russia is isolated. Sanctions. It can't you know can't circumvent the sanctions. Uh, and and there's enough economic pressure on Russia over time to to reduce his ability to fund his war-making machine, and then potentially over time, you know, for the Russian people, those maybe even in the inner circle in the, in the Kremlin, to see that Vladimir Putin is, is destroying the country, you know, and, and they need a, to, to take a different approach. So your, your long-run strategy here is, we know sanctions aren't going to stop the Russian army in the next couple of months from doing whatever they want to do in Ukraine. Uh, and so you're hoping for enough crippling economic sanctions over five, 10 years to induce the Russians to, uh, to overthrow Vladimir Putin. That's a, uh, that's a difficult, as we know, that's a di- especially with China and a lot of other people who will get tired of this whole business after a couple of years. That's a difficult uh, strategy to, to hope for. Uh, dictators can, can punish their own people tremendously. Uh, the small number of things they actually need to keep their armies going, they can smuggle in. Um, that, that's a, that, that doesn't seem, seem like, also not particularly one we're thinking too hard about. Um, for example, the, the oligarchs were, were taking away their assets and sending them back to Russia. Maybe we should be encouraging the oligarchs to all leave Russia, get to keep your London apartment if you get rid of your Russian apartment. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be where we're thinking of what is actually the long run goal. If we stated the long run goal, here's regime change in Russia via these sanctions. Whew, um, well, then, then we might have a different uh, view of how well it's going. You know, the, the idea of of protecting sovereignty was something that um, that really resonated. When 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 HR and I were in office, I, I used to pull together um, a couple of times. I pulled together what we called Indo-Pacific workshops, where I brought um, senior level officials from thirty some odd countries across the Indo-Pacific region, and and we we worked on a set of common principles that we could all agree on. Things that that we we you know just just common denominator sorts of uh, principles and values. And sovereignty was the first one. It was hey, one that hey, Matt, everyone- I'm thinking of President Trump's apex speech that we sat around the picnic table in the, uh, you know, in, in, the, on, the, 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 in the South Lawn of the White House with uh, the writing that speech. Yeah, yeah. This, was, this was when President Trump gave a speech in, uh, in uh, Da Nang um, on his marathon trip to Asia. He did the, a two-week trip to Asia in late 2017. It was the longest trip in a quarter century by a U.S. president to the region. And he gave a speech about sovereignty and about the idea that no country should be a satellite to another country. And it, I, I mean, the, the, the Vietnamese, uh, I, I mean, it was filled with ASEAN 
country representatives, but of course, Vietnam uh, uh, business people and officials and, and, uh, and, and the public were beside themselves uh, with um, enthusiasm at, at the message of that speech. And so it, it was soon after that you started to see the whole region adopt some of the language, free and open Indo-Pacific, for example, which was Prime Minister Abe's term, which we consciously adopted because we saw virtue in, in echoing a, a similar message. Then we saw it from Australia. Then, then Southeast Asia adopted what they called their Indo-Pacific outlook. The Chinese government was so alarmed at the, the terminology Indo-Pacific that they ran a diplomatic interference campaign threatening the countries of Southeast Asia that they have to give up that term. And the countries of the Southeast Asia stuffed it back down Beijing's throat. And they adopted the term Indo-Pacific. If you saw, there was a speech by uh, Le Yuchang, who's a senior Chinese diplomat, just uh, just on Friday, I think it was reported at the end of last week when when President Biden and, and uh, Xi Jinping were speaking, and he again threatened uh, countries that are using this terminology. He's equating the term Indo-Pacific as as some kind of neo-NATO uh, uh, concept. So it just shows you if China is this allergic to terminology based on a common appreciation of the idea of sovereignty. Uh, and and the, the idea that countries should not be satellites under a new hierarchical sphere of influence that China sits, uh, you know, atop. Um, uh, then it tells you that something about um, us being on the right track and and, and the types of things where we're going to find um, harmonic resonance between the foreign policies of a lot of different kinds of countries, including, for example, Vietnam. Vietnam's an authoritarian system, but they're also a partner of the United States in in our current uh, paradigm. I have a question for the two practitioners here who've been in the situation room and have uh, taken uh, or at least advised uh, a president to take difficult decisions. Uh, there is a game plan, as far as I can see, uh, within the administration, uh, which clearly has significant buy-in. And the game plan is, as we've discussed, uh, keep the Ukrainians in the fight with stingers and javelins and drones and keep them inflicting casualties on the Russian army. But let that continue and let the sanctions continue to hurt the Russian economy. And then uh, first thing that happens is that uh, Russia is, is bled dry and then, then Putin is toppled. And finally, the Chinese get the message, don't mess with the West. Now, I've heard from more than one source that this is essentially the strategy of the Biden administration, which is why they are not pushing very hard to try and get a ceasefire. In fact, they're not involved in the diplomatic negotiations, so far as I can see. If you were in the Situation Room or, or in some other uh, part of the uh, White House uh, and somebody made that argument, what would the counter argument be? Because I hope that somebody in the administration is is setting out downside risks of, of all of this. Yeah. Uh, the counter argument would be um, <clears throat> to take a page from Zhou Enlai, the, the uh, former Chinese official, uh, uh, the late Chinese official who used to talk about fighting while talking. Okay. It's something the United States has never really figured out how to do. <laughs> We've always thought that, look, if we're, if we're ready to talk, we, we we need to we need to go easy on our adversary so that we we create the right mood lighting like we did with setting. the Taliban. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Vietnamese. Ridiculous. I mean, right. Fighting while talking. We should be uh, doing everything short of of putting our own troops 
um, uh, you know, at, 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 uh, at direct odds with Russian soldiers in order to help uh, Ukraine achieve a decisive victory or to put the possibility of a decisive victory on the table um, so that um, so that Vladimir Putin has uh, a, uh, you know, second thoughts about waiting uh, uh, to, and trying to build up more leverage for his own negotiating position. We should be talking while fighting harder, um, in my view. Yeah, I, I would just agree. I would just say the first thing you have to do is establish a framework that focuses on outcomes. What is it that you want to achieve? And I think there are four outcomes that we want to achieve. We want to ensure Russia fails, right? Objective number one, not just a stalemate, not just a slow bleeding out of the Ukrainians and Russian force, but Russia must fail. That entails really convincing Putin he's lost, right? And that means doing more than we're doing now. Now, specifically what that means can be determined later, but establish and agree on that objective. Objective two would be to, uh, I, I think, to mitigate the humanitarian catastrophe that's happening there. And and there are obviously a whole range of actions that can be taken uh, to, to help do that, some of them military as, as well. The third objective would be prevent escalation to nuclear war. I mean, I think everybody wants to do that. Right. So that should be an objective that that may be in tension, obviously, with some of the other activities you might uh, consider and actions. And then fourth, we want to use this crisis to shift the balance back in favor of the United States and the free world. And and of course, that would mean we would have longer plans. So John, John uh, and, and Matt, you're talking about sort of long plans that Xi Jinping has. What's what are our long plans? Right. Uh, and, and that would have, I think, a profound impact on maybe. How about a sensible energy policy? How about that to, to start? You know, how about uh, you know how about defense and 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 vastly increasing our defense spending and recognition? We can't do just one thing at a time, and we need to deter China as well as Russia by denial, right? To convince them they they can't accomplish their objectives, these of force. So I think I think those are the four objectives, and then whatever you come up with in terms of a range of activities and initiatives and programs and operations and so forth has to fit in. Uh, to, toward you know, to to that kind of that kind of a framework, and this is the kind of work, Matt, that you know you and I did all the time, right? And then we would identify the assumptions on which the planning effort was based, and then we would you know we would identify the obstacles to progress and the opportunities, and how to integrate all elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners to accomplish those objectives. I don't see that kind of a, a clear framework for what we're doing and and a clear articulation right of what is the strategy to accomplish clearly defined objectives oftentimes in administration policies like the indo-pacific strategy that came out which had a lot of good points in it it had objectives those objectives were all activities so if you if you don't really have objectives in mind how do you come up with measures of effectiveness how do you how do you evaluate the degree to which you're succeeding or failing and so I, I think that I think just strategic competence uh, is an area that we really, you know, need to focus on because all of our responses to these kind of crises lack the coherence of uh, of what Churchill said. Is right, you have to be able to see the beginning and the end, right, in in one long view, and be able to describe that um, to, to so the look, American I agree. people. I I think these should be our our objectives. I think those are good objectives. And and to go to your first one, that Russia must fail. Uh, if if we agree uh, that that's the first objective, um, why tiptoe toward that outcome uh, or, or have it have it come out just by the skin of its teeth while cities are obliterated, as opposed to going for what I think it was Churchill who said, go for the obliterative victory, 
right? Just let, let's, let's, let's press the clock. Let's, uh, let's actually press for an outcome uh, that is, it would actually be more strategic and more moral to try to prevent uh, the bleeding out of, uh, of, of a country over the course of weeks or months as opposed to to really trying to press for a decisive victory. I don't think I don't think you guys are even clear enough. Uh, you said yes, we want Russia to fail without really saying what that is, except of course if it means U.S. troops, which we can't do, or provoking nuclear war, which uh, now now seem you know he's Putin has already said well you know sanctions are are something that I'd consider in launching nukes. So when do we give up on sanctions? Um, uh, I mean, so let's is what what Russia fails has to mean from our point of view is that the entire territory of Ukraine is restored to the Ukrainian government, all of it, including Crimea, whose territorial which we guaranteed originally, uh, and Ukraine is a full independent country with its own foreign policy and its choice of who it wants to ally with and who it wants to trade with. Uh, and the minute you say, well, except for we don't want to provoke nuclear war or except for we can't even think about Americans uh, fighting for this and put lines in it. Uh, I, I don't I didn't even hear from you guys. That's where we have to go. And because Zelensky, bless his heart, his goal can be has to be much less than that. His goal has to be survive, produce some sort of country. Yeah, sure. Let the Russians have what it takes. Uh, but keep something alive. Uh, sure, be a buffer state that's better than be completely wiped out. We have to care about uh, about re- returning to the status quo, as we used to say. And I don't even hear that kind of clarity from from what you guys are saying. And it's a hard one to swallow. Well, you know, I mean, there are always limitations, right, on the on the amount of force you can use. And we've been talking about the Korean War analogy, right? We we actually limited uh, you know, our the, our destructive power that was available to us. In, in the Korean War, uh, we we yep. did we didn't insist on 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 reunifying the reunifying the whole peninsula under the control of the government in Seoul, for example. You know, so so we we did agree to certain you know limited uh, objectives and limitations in the amount of force that we've used. Uh, you can say the same thing in, in Vietnam, right? I mean, the, what that's why I think we're headed inevitably to... to partition of the country and a and a long Cold War um, rather than than the um, than what you said and. Uh, you know, all this, everybody's up for the wonderful principle of sovereignty, but nobody really cared about that in 2014. And nobody really wants to do what it takes to restore Ukrainian sovereignty now. But I, I think within that framework, right, some some objectives in war will be in tension with one another, right? And and the key thing you have to do in development of policy and strategy is to reconcile some of those tensions, identify the risks, maybe associated with an escalation, but then you can act to mitigate those risks as well. I think there are a range of actions that could be taken in support of the Ukrainians that 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 actually are, are compatible with all four of those objectives. Medium range air defense capabilities, for example, just one minor example, shortest ship missile capabilities, for example, to make sure Odessa doesn't fall. If you're looking at the in the near term, I think what has to happen is uh, Kiev and and uh, and Odessa must not fall, right? And and if Putin says that's provocative, uh, I you know um, I, I, he rattles his nukes about you can't send air defenses. You're you know you're sending the things that shoots down my brave Russian boys. Do we stop? No, <laughs> no. I okay. mean, I don't think so. I mean, my so, assessment somewhere you got to call the bluff. My, my, I mean, my, my assessment would be that there is a lot more that can be done uh, be, before you know before you get to the, the risk to you, the use of the most destructive weapons on Earth. And I think that one of some of the ways to mitigate it is to to make Jesus, clear, not ours, you know, let's to, be clear. Yeah, to, to make clear to Russia, we can create all kinds of problems for you elsewhere as well. 
I mean, we could, if we wanted to sink every one of his ships in the Black Sea. I mean, we, we could do that. We could ship, we could sink his ships in the Eastern Mediterranean around the port of Latakia. You know, oh, we could, you know, we, we, we could, could do, quite, we could declare we could a no-fly zone. Do, we could do quite a bit. Uh, and he knows that. And this is why I think it's such a mistake to keep taking everything off the table. I mean, just like, just leave it on the table, right? I mean, you don't have to do it, you know, it being whatever it is, you know, transfer of MIGs or medium range air defense or whatever it is, but just stop saying what we're not going to do, you know? And, and there, so anyway, I, I think there's a lot more that could be done. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the first and second objectives are related, right? I mean, you know, ensuring Russia fails and mitigating the humanitarian catastrophe there means giving the Ukrainians additional capabilities to attack these artillery systems that are rubbling the cities, to interdict their supply lines. And I'll tell you, I mean, the Russians, though, you know, it always looks bad, right, from behind your lines, right? <laughs> Grant, when he read to rode to the front on one of his one of his first battles in the Civil War, he saw wounded, he saw destruction, and he thought we must be losing this battle. And he gets to the front, and General Phil Sheridan says, "Hey, everything's in hand." And then and, you know, and he he makes this comment about, "I wasn't viewing this battle from the perspective of the enemy. They were in a much worse situation than we are." I think the Russians are in a pretty damn bad situation from a, a military operational perspective and tactical perspective. Matt, I don't know what your read is. I mean, what, what do you see as, as you know, I, and of course we can say, okay, make sure Russia fails. What does that mean? Yeah, I think they failed already, by the way. I think they've already failed. If you, if you judge failure by what their initial objectives were, but Matt, what's your read of it from a military perspective? I mean, <clears throat> I I'm reading uh, secondhand sources about what's happening on the ground and some, some, some firsthand sources, uh, my, my old wall street journal, uh, colleague uh, Yaroslav Trofimov is on the, on the ground there and watching what he's writing. Uh, I guess what's clear enough is that that um, uh, that the, the 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 outright taking of cities has failed, and therefore uh, the strategy is now to rubble cities and then and then move in after after the fact. So if we can find uh, ways to um, uh, impose asymmetric costs or, or direct costs, like you said, on those systems that are being used, other than perhaps missiles inside of Russian territory. Although, what's to stop Ukraine if they have the capability from actually attacking positions inside of Russia? Uh, two can play at that game. But at a minimum, destroying those logistics trains and uh, and and maneuver units on the ground uh, uh, inside of Ukraine uh, with with additional capability. Uh, you know, more drones, more <laughs> Hellfire missiles uh, that can be launched from those drones. Um, some maybe electronic warfare capabilities that are able to uh, to, to actually. Neil uh, is usually on, on the on the uh, less enthusiastic side. You know, what if they just ignore the cities, encircle the Ukrainian army? It's kind of now it's kind of done, and we're just talking about how we divide up the country. Yeah, I mean, if I were looking at downside risks at the moment, basing this on on what I hear from military analysts far more experienced than me, I'd say that plan A failed and failed quickly. Plan B, which is essentially the Syria playbook, could work. Uh, after all, Assad is still in power in no small part due to Russian uh, tactics like these, the destruction of cities, uh, and the Russians have the firepower to do more of it. They also have, I think, still the capacity to inflict uh, 
uh, to inflict defeat, so at least on some part of Ukraine's defending forces. And I worry that if we say, let this war continue, we're bleeding Russia dry, we could look very foolish three weeks from now if after the fall of Mariupol, the Russians are able to roll up uh, Ukraine's uh, positions in the Donbass and then turn uh, to Mykolaiv and Odessa. Uh, if the Belarusians do send in uh, soldiers, which I'm hearing they may this week, the military situation could in fact swing against Ukraine's uh, defenders. Now, I say this not in a spirit of defeatism, which somebody accused me of the other day, but realism, that there's no question, you know, which is the bigger military power in this fight. And although we are supplying the Ukrainians with uh, some uh, some fearsome hardware, as, as HR has said, we're not supplying them with the things that can take out the really serious uh, Russian threats posed by high altitude bombing and, of course, by cruise missiles. So I'm worried that this war, which I'm being told by such luminaries as Max Boot and Elliot Cohen that the Ukrainians are winning, well, they're not losing it, but they could still. And I think if we confidently assume that, that Zelensky's social media game is so great he can't lose, we're missing some very serious dangers to the Ukrainian position that still exist on the ground. So that that's a big concern of mine. I'll take the other concern I have, and I want to hear Matt's thoughts on this. I think the idea that you're successfully intimidating Xi Jinping with all of this, which I, I guess to be a part of the thinking in Washington, that too could go wrong. You could end up, in fact, driving Russia and China closer together with the strategy, which is the opposite, of course, of the famous Kissinger playbook, that you ideally want them each to be closer to the United States than they are to one another. So, Matt, if I can just turn away from the battlefield where I, I do think the downside risks of being underestimated. Hey, 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 before, hey, Neil, before you turn away from the battlefield, if you're getting your military advice from Elliot Cohen, I mean, I might just suggest a few other people to talk to, you know. Right. Well, that's it. You know, <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, I mean the, 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 the Russians have lost 25% of their combat power. 25%. Yeah, so, I mean, Elliot, I, I just I mean, think... Elliot Cohen's argument is that the Ukraine is winning the war. Max <laughs> Boot says this too. Yeah. But as you you know, look carefully at what the Russians still have. They have a lot of firepower and they can do a lot more destruction. Uh, I don't think they can fight this war indefinitely themselves. I think they've got weeks left to play with. But in those weeks, they can do a lot of, of damage to Ukraine. That's really my concern. Ukraine is defending. Ukraine is not rolling Russian troops back to the frontier. So Ukraine doesn't win this war the way we've been defining win this war until hey, it's pushed Russian every troops Russian troop are out. Leaving, they're leaving their combat vehicles and walking out. They're changing into civilian clothes and trying to exfiltrate across the Belarusian border. These things are happening. Okay. okay. They're happening. And this is, you know, you've got to take everything with a grain of salt that comes from Ukraine, exclusively Ukrainian sources. But I'm telling you, the people that I'm plugged into are describing a situation that is quite desperate for the Russians at this moment. But, uh, but hey, we'll see. We don't know. You know, war is very ambiguous. But Matt, I want you to, I want you to address the triangular diplomacy issue that Neil brought up. Uh, yeah, that's why. Yeah, because absolutely. we've had a few conversations about this too. I, what are your I saw, thoughts? On? I saw. By the way, just Elliot Cohen had written a piece. I think it was yesterday in the Atlantic that made the point HR that you're making that yeah. the, the situation yeah. is desperate. Um, and and uh, and you know, I, I hope that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, by the way, so do I. Um, I hope sure. Frank Fukuyama and Elliot Cohen. I hope they're all right, and I hope you're right, HR, that the Russian military effort is about to fall apart. 
and at that point, it's all to play for. And I'm, well, I mean, you know, they can still bombard cities. Finished. That's the point that you've made. I agree with you. I mean, this is not, it's not over, right? It's entering a new and possibly even more destructive phase. Right. But they cannot use maneuver forces to occupy cities, right? They're not going to be able to subjugate all of Ukraine and control it. Yeah. Look, um, on triangulation, I, I'm in, <laughs> I, I, I love the idea. We, we did some things while we were in office in order to try to test the idea that that you could pry um, uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, and Xi Jinping uh, away from each other from their 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 love and embrace that they're in. Uh, the fact is that that embrace really began ten years ago. It was initiated by Xi Jinping. I want to I want to read for you. You know, we 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 all remember the quote, Neil. You've written about. The you know the 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 meaning and and things that we shouldn't derive too much meaning from uh, when Putin said the biggest catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, you've you've made a persuasive argument that what he's really trying to restore is something pre-Soviet, hmm. uh, you know, an empire. Uh, but for Xi Jinping. Uh, that really was the worst catastrophe yes. of the 20th century yes, was, the, right. was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so thanks to a leak of a speech that he gave in December of 2012, almost 10 years ago, within weeks of him taking office, he said, why did the Soviet Union disintegrate? Why did the Soviet Communist Party collapse? An important reason was that their ideals and beliefs had been shaken. In the end, the ruler's flag over the city tower changed overnight. It's a profound lesson for us. Emphatic. He had he used an explanation point to dismiss the history of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Communist Party, to dismiss Lenin and Stalin. Stalin is really the spirit animal that, uh, for Xi Jinping, and to dismiss everything else is to engage in historical nihilism, and it confuses our thoughts and undermines the party's organizations at all levels. And then he flew off to Moscow to to meet Putin as his first trip. And he, and he boasted to him of all the Russian literature he'd read, including a lot of hardcore Soviet indoctrination stuff, you know, tempering the steel and, and things of this nature. So, so look, this is not, I don't believe this is a nation state to nation state uh, entente. I think it's a, a dictator to dictator entente. And the way to break that entente is to lash them ever tighter together so that, so that they have to live like Siamese twins with one another's mistakes and miscalculations. And then they're going to be begging for surgery to fricking rip them apart, or at least their countries are when these two guys finally uh, leave the scene. But right now there is no wedge uh, that, uh, that, you know, there, there, there's no carrot or inducement that's going to cause Vladimir Putin to say, yeah, you know, you're right. I really, I, I really, I really uh, mortgaged a little too much to uh, Xi Jinping. Well, We're, Russia's we have to military, wait for these men to leave the scene. Russia's military tied to Chinese, China's economy is not something that's going to be a quick cold war to wait for it to implode. It's an interesting question, actually. I mean, I, I think one of the most interesting questions is how far can any material assistance uh, that China provides shore up the Russian war effort. Because in some ways, if you look at the casualties and the damage to equipment, the attrition is at such a spectacularly high rate that this war can only last a few more weeks from Putin's vantage point. And he's got to try and get to as strong a position as he can uh, in those next few weeks to begin negotiating about territory. Because I think the Ukrainians have basically conceded the key points of a non-territorial nature. They, they're taking NATO off the table. That was kind of always a little unlikely that it would happen. And they uh, are going to be neutral with outside guarantees. But the, the sticking points are territorial. And I 
I would say Putin can't really present this as a victory if it's the status quo ante, i.e. Crimea plus Donetsk and Luhansk. He's got He's got to try and have more to show for all these casualties than that. And this is where it gets difficult, because as far as I can understand it, the Ukrainians are in no mood to make concessions on territorial issues. On the contrary, the more we tell them that they're winning, the more unlikely they are to concede a square mile to Putin. And this is where I think not doing any diplomacy, not going back to Matt's point, not talking while they're fighting is a mistake. My feeling about war as a historical observation is the longer it lasts, the harder it gets to stop. You know, some wars are very short. When they're measured in days, think of uh, 1973, uh, Yom Kippur, you can get it done. But you have to move quickly, as Kissinger did, to get that war to stop. We are sitting watching this war, assuming that it'll sort of stop itself after sufficient damage has been done to Russia. Well, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Matt, I want to hear what you think about this. I, I just want to see, you know, if World War One was stalemated because in the West, this is again, Churchill, we're recording quite a bit today. In the West, the armies were too big for the land. In the East, the land was too big for the armies. Right. And I think you had the latter situation at play here in, in, in Ukraine. And because and both sides could not say we're done and we just give up on the million slaughtered. They had to come up with some victory to justify the massive loss, even though when both recognized we should just stop right now. Philip Zelika's great book right. that came out last year, The Road Not Taken, showed that even although it should have been possible to stop World War One in 1916, Woodrow Wilson couldn't do it. And I think this is an important point that things can go too far. Too many people have already died. Uh, if I were Ukrainian, I'd be in no mood for a, a, a peace based on compromise. So I, I think if one just takes a step back and asks, where do we go from here? Or HR's question, what's the desirable end state? It can't be for Ukraine to be like Afghanistan in the 1980s, a war zone in which we fund an insurgency, but the place itself ends up set back half a century in terms of economic development. It's too close to Europe for that to be desirable. The consequences in terms of refugees, not to mention loss of life, seem to be too great. So I'm, I'm increasingly of the opinion that the rational strategy should be just to try to stop this war before it escalates further uh, in the interests of not just saving lives, that, that moral imp impulse, but actually in, strategic in, in our strategic interests. And I wonder if that's too... Uh, too uh, too soft a position in these days when uh, op-eds are published declaring that victory is in sight for Ukraine. But don't you worry that continuation of the war creates all kinds of unintended consequences, including in the economic domain, John? I mean, we already had an inflation problem going in here. <laughs> it's gotten an awful lot worse. And I'm trying to think through how we benefit if the Europeans are then induced to do an oil embargo. It pushes the oil price up still higher. There's a lot of moving parts here that it seemed to me can create a more unstable world. Let me share a confession with you. I haven't felt this worried about the world since I was a teenager in the 1970s. Some people think it's 1989. I think it's 1979. And I feel a sense, a sense of almost nausea each morning when I wake up to see what happened next. And I can't remember feeling that at any point since 1989. This, this is a world that can get a lot nastier wherever you look. I don't think the threat to Taiwan is by any means off the table. I don't think the threat to Israel that Iran will pose with nuclear weapons is off the table. And I keep thinking of Sartre's trilogy about the 
origins of World War II, those extraordinary novels that begin with the age of reason. Uh, and they capture very well the sinking feeling that you had if you were French in the late 1930s. I have that sinking feeling at the moment, I must confess. Look, it brings us back where, where we started with, with uh, the Korean War, right? That war technically has not ended today. It, there's an armistice in place. There's never been a treaty. Um, and uh, and uh, North Korea is developing long-range nuclear <laughs> nuclear tip missiles. Uh, so it, we're, we're still reaping the uh, consequences of that conflict. I agree with you. I think that we should amp up the intensity or, or to help our, our, uh, our, our friends in Ukraine amp up the intensity of their fight to give them a stronger negotiating position and to give Vladimir Putin food for thought. And that we should then be uh, uh, driving um, the, the uh, conversations. Um, I agree with you. Fight while, while we talk. Fight while we talk. It Neil, was, Neil's point is some, the next bad thing that happens will hit a very fragile world. Uh, and and I think uh, the next bad thing that happens won't be necessarily obvious. It could even be, you know, one tactical nuclear weapon that uh, Putin sends off just to kind of show he's serious. That would, I think, set, you know, let's hope you don't have any stocks <laughs> when that happens. Uh, bank runs, God knows what that uh, sort of thing. Uh, the lights will go off <laughs> across Europe. If that's By the way, he, he, he has to know, that. he has to know that yeah. he won't survive that. He does does he know he won't survive that? I, I think he well yeah I, I think he has to know he won't survive. Would, that. I, and and I, there, I, there could be there could be a conventional response to that that could ensure he right. wouldn't respond. He wouldn't. There could be. But, but, hey, but let's, the same. I'd like to end. You know, to... Unsur unsurprisingly, I'd like to end on a, on an up note here, man. All right, so so <laughs> it's going to be like this is our we're we're almost out of time. Okay, so Neil gave us like the down view, you know, and but I think this is a moment of clarity, right? We've been sleepwalking. We've taken a holiday from history. I think, John, your initial comments uh, today uh, about you know how this this crisis is in part due to our lack of self confidence, right? Divisions and 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 a sense of weakness that that Xi Jinping and and uh, and and Putin had about us. I mean, look at their five thousand word statement on the eve of the Olympics in Beijing. Basically, the message was, "Hey, you guys are over, right? We're it now, right? We are. You know, this is a new era of international relations." So I, you know, I'm more optimistic about maybe this being a clarifying moment for us to regain our confidence in our democratic principles, institutions, and processes, who we are, you know, as Americans, who we are across the free world. So, you know, what, what I'd just like to, to ask at the end is your, just your comments on, do we get stronger or weaker as a result of this, uh, of this, uh, this crisis, uh, that final objective of using the crisis to try to shift the balance back in favor of us. And, and uh, you know, I'd love to hear from, from John and Neil, and then give Matt the, the last word. Well, I, okay, I got to channel optimism from from HR. Uh, Europe has woken up um, to some extent that their energy policies and their agriculture policies are insane. Now, not to the full extent, you know, Belgium, for example, I think they had five nuclear reactors. They said, well, we'll keep two, <laughs> but we'll still shut down the other three. Uh, our SEC just passed a whole bunch of climate rules. So it, that, that, but that moment of clarity about we've been goofing around and we need to get serious uh, I think I think is that is that is uh, uh, one avenue for celebrating, and you know the West is a good thing worth saving and worth fighting for. I think people are more serious about that. What you mentioned about the uh, in Indo-Pacific region, um, uh, so so there is there is a hope that we needed a, a common a common enemy, a common sense of danger in order to wake ourselves up and get serious again.
So I'll leave that as the optimist. We got to end up in the HR optimistic note. So I'll try that one. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I wake up and then roll over and go back to sleep. And I worry a little bit about how long Europe's resolve will actually last. Uh, indeed, how long the engagement of the American public in the Ukrainian You're supposed to be optimistic, last. Neil. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think uh, the thing that strikes me from a historian's vantage point is a, a plague came from China in 2020 and wreaked havoc. Now a war has emerged from Russia and it's wreaking a lot of havoc. And uh, the assumption that there won't be some additional shock to echo something John just said, I think is a mistake. And when the administration's reduced to doing deals with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard to try and salvage their nuclear deal. I wonder what comes next in the Middle East. Nothing good, I'll, I'll be bound. I'll, I'll leave it to Matt to try and end on, a, on an optimistic note. But for me, <laughs> right. even the That's lesson a good of the setup. Korean War... It's a good War, setup. There's nowhere to go but up now, Matt. Let's That's remember, right. even the lesson of the <laughs> Korean War was that, that actually it proved impossible for the United States to do anything like that again. It tried to in Vietnam, and well, you know how that ended. I, I, am act, I actually am uh, optimistic, even though I share Neil's concerns about where, uh, you know, what else may come to pass uh, b- before we are victorious and the free world uh, asserts itself decisively. But I think we will. And let me read you a, a line. I mean, the, the, the disorder that gives Neil, you know, uh, you know, butterflies in the morning, like it's 1979 again actually is something that Xi Jinping um, uh, feels good about. And so here's a quote from Xi uh, just from April last year. The world today is undergoing a great change in situation unseen in a century. Since the most recent period of time, the most important characteristic of the world is in a world disorder. And this trend appears likely to continue further. He views this as an amazing uh, smokescreen for, for, for his ambitions because he doesn't go to bed feeling great at night either, but for the opposite reason. And that is, this guy has night sweats thinking of what his own people might do if they ever assert themselves. This is a guy who's terrified of his own people. The common denominator between him and Vladimir Putin is what they call color revolutions, right? Xi Jinping has talked in, with greater and greater frequency. It was in their, their communique uh, on, on February 4th. And she has been talking openly about the, the threat of, of color revolutions, not only at home, but even if neighboring countries have democratic uh, movements, that is something that, that keeps him up at night, uh, you know, uh, sweating into his pillow. Um, that should hearten us. That 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 our, it clarifies for us who our adversary is. It's a guy who wants the world to be in chaos, so that uh, he doesn't have to worry about uh, his own people who might assert themselves or neighboring countries that might turn democratic. The things that fe- that he fears should actually define what makes us great and strong and give us the confidence that we're going to win. I feel Matt, that's, hey, that's, a, that's a great way to end it. I tell you, we, we are very fortunate to have you here at the Hoover Institution. Thanks to you and Neil and John. That wraps up this edition of Goodfellows. If you enjoy Goodfellows, please take a moment to subscribe to the Hoover Institution YouTube channel by hitting the subscribe button and the like button if you enjoyed this episode. And please watch another show, Battlegrounds, also available on the Hoover YouTube channel. Hey, we'll be back soon with another edition of Goodfellows. Until then, for Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, and our guest, Matt Pottinger, thanks for watching.